Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, once more, verses 1 to 7. First Corinthians 12, 1 to 7. Um, once again, let me give you um, an orientation to where we are. We're in a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, and he's, we have recorded for us two of his letters to them, First and Second Corinthians. We are in chapter 12, and beginning with chapter 11, the Apostle Paul has turned from other problems in the church. The letters of the New Testament are almost all um, occasioned by problems of one sort or another. And with chapter 11, the Apostle Paul turns to the problems having to do with them in their worship. Um, And so... He knows of various issues that have to be dealt with in the church. And with chapter 11, he begins to turn to issues that are most obvious when they come together to worship. The first issue he deals with is that the women of the church are not being submissive. They're not wearing any head coverings, um, which show their submissiveness to God's order of creation. They won't do it. Then he talks about the fact that when they come to the Lord's table, the rich people are getting drunk and and pigging out at the food, while the poor people have nothing. And here's the table that's supposed to be the very center of the uh, unity of the church under Jesus. And instead of it being unity, it's being division and division between the rich and the poor. So he deals with that. Now, with the beginning of chapter 12, we go into the issue of the Corinthian church being divided over the spiritual gifts that they've been received from God. And we're going to spend a couple of chapters on this division. Um, it's a very serious division because it's, it's completely twisted when the gifts that God gives to various individuals in the church become the way for that individual to lord it over other individuals and to take pride. And so these are the sins of their corporate worship. And we now turn to this third one, which is division over the spiritual gifts. Um, let me, for those of us who, are, uh, who haven't been here before, let me remind you, Corinth is just like Bloomington, very, very proud. It's a church that's, it's, it's a city and therefore a church that's filled with esthetes, you know, people that are convinced that what really matters is that we cop a posture of sophistication and have the right taste in clothing and furniture and hairstyle and bruise. You know, um, intellectually, they think they have arrived and complete, complete sexual perversity. 
The things God says should be matters of shame. They take pride in. And the things that God says are matters of glory and pride, they're ashamed of, right? So everything in life, they've flipped upside down, all right? Now let's read the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 12. Now, concerning gifts, spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is the word of the Lord. Concerning, now concerning spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? They're gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And so we could translate the phrase now, concerning gifts from the Holy Spirit. Now, we saw a couple weeks ago that the prophets of the Old Testament had long ago testified that the time of the Messiah coming would be a time of great pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In Joel 2, 28 and 29, the prophet Joel prophesied, it will come about, After this, and he's speaking for God, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so this is what is going to come with the Messiah. And so when the Messiah, Jesus, came... He reiterated, he repeated those promises by telling his disciples that they were about to be visited by this great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, and this is typical of things he said a number of times, Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And who is the helper? He says, but if I go, I will send him to you. It's hard to imagine anything being good about Jesus going away, and yet Jesus says, it's good that I go away, because if I go away, I'm going to send the helper. Well, the helper is the Holy Spirit. So then, when Jesus ascends into heaven, when he's glorified in heaven, We read in Acts 2, at the very beginning of the account of the Christian church, the beginning of it is the day of Pentecost, where we read, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, And they rested, these tongues of fire, on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the Holy Spirit comes, and they begin to speak in tongues. Now, it kind of makes sense then that the Corinthian church is divided over the gift of tongues. Because if the church begins because of everyone speaking in different tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, you imagine what a radical thing that is. And you know how 
Many of you have nothing to say about the work of God in your life beyond what happened when you first came to Jesus. You ever notice that about us? You know, the only thing we can ever talk about is when I first saw the light. And so we've repeatedly go back to Campus Crusade or Navigators or Vacation Bible School or something. Something in the past, and we live in the past. And the only thing we can say about ourselves is that one time we went forward in a Billy Graham crusade, right? You get my point? Listen, it's easy to understand how after the Holy Spirit came on all the Christians and they spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, then even now in Corinth, years later, they're all going back to speaking in tongues. And the whole pecking order is established on the basis of speaking in tongues. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So this is the backdrop to the conflict in the Corinthian church. And the Apostle Paul begins by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. He continues, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now let me deal with that last phrase first. However you were led is his way of saying what? However you were led. In other words, he's saying, yeah, yeah, you were led differently than you were led, and you were, you were a little bit weirder than him, and, you know. However you were led, that's what he's saying at the end. So what comes before is important, because what he's saying is, yeah, there was a diversity in your bondage, but you were all in bondage. You know... In other words, he's saying something that everybody would agree with. You know that when you, in other words, everybody's talking to what? When, past tense, when you were pagans. Now, what is the word pagan? Well, it's the Greek word ethne. So that's where we get ethnography and ethnic and all those eth words, right? They indicate the diversity of people groups. But it, 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 it's not a neutral term here. We tend to use it in a neutral way. The way the Apostle Paul's using it here, very clearly, it's negative. You know when you were, and that's why it's translated pagans. It could have been translated, you know, when you were Gentiles. Most Bibles actually do translate it Gentiles. Well, the minute you hear Gentiles, you know what you're dealing with, right? It's the Bible. And so when they say Gentiles, there's only one other thing. What is it? Jews. In other words, you know back when you were goyim, back when you were dirty people, or as the New Testament puts it, I'm sorry to be indelicate, but this is what the Bible says, back when you were uncircumcised. Well, that's a way of saying filthy. And all the Jews looked at everyone else and saw them as filthy. Now, right about now, we're all thinking to ourselves something along the following lines. Well, that's not very spiritual. Why would God's people... Weren't the Jews God's people? Yeah, they were God's people. Why would they look at everybody else as filthy? 
They must have been a very proud people, Jews. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why were they proud? Now, I'm about to take a large departure from my manuscript. <laughs> but listen, I just am always struck by my brain as I preach and the degree to which I don't live in Scripture, I live in the world as I see it. And, and so I'm discovering that myself right now, and so I'm going to open up my brain to you. How can we see Jews today and not see the superiority complex they have? I mean, have any of you ever talked to Bob? I mean, even in his humor, Bob is always one-upping you. Have you ever noticed this about Bob? It is central to Jewish humor to one-up you. And if they can't one-up you with their intellectual superiority, their superiority of vocabulary, their superiority of education, of creativity, of brilliance, and it's usually very easy for them to do that to everywhere around, everyone around the world. All right? Are you going to accuse me of being anti-Semitic by saying that? For heaven's sakes, Jews make Chinese look absolutely pathetic when it comes to money. And you have to work hard to do that. Look, come on, every people group has certain identities. Let's chill out about it, all right? And if they can't whoop up on you by their brilliance, they'll whoop up on you by their guilt. They will be a better victim than you, right? Which is why one of my favorite jokes is, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None, I'll just sit here in the dark. Bob thinks it's funny. Now listen. Remember I said that Jews looked at everyone else who was not a Jew as a Gentile, as a goyim. What do they refer in the Orthodox communities in New York City, where my father grew up, what do they refer to the person who used to light their fire, push the buttons on their elevators? What do they refer to those people who do that on the Sabbath as? Those people they hire to do their work on the Sabbath are called Sabbath gleam. And it's not a compliment. And so what you see here is the Apostle Paul is saying, you know that when you were Gentiles. Other places, what the Apostle Paul refers to them as is uncircumcised. And it's not a compliment. God's people look down on everyone else. Now, why did God's people look down on everyone else? The reason they look down on everyone else is that no one else had been pulled out of the pit of sin and blindness and death that they had been pulled out of by God. Do you understand this? The Jews were chosen by God. And so they looked at God choosing them, and then God showed that he chose them by what? Well, first of all, he completely destroyed the Egyptians. Then he completely destroyed the Canaanites. And all through history, they had God's moral law. Look at America today. For, for centuries, for millennia, we have had God's moral law in Christendom. And we are absolutely hell-bound to throw the moral law out. 
And it's to our own shame, it's to our own sadness, it's to our own death and tragedy. Okay? But the Jews knew that God had used the moral law to protect them, to make their lives happy, to make them have lots of children, and to be wealthy. The Jews could see all through history that when they were in covenant with God, they were a blessed people. When their ark went out, the center of their worship, the ark of the covenant, when their ark went out, all the Canaanites turned absolutely into, now, I'm sorry, but can I say it? Women! And they crumbled and ran from the Ark of the Covenant because the Jewish God was the only true God because he'd blessed the people because everywhere they went where God was with them, nobody could stand against them. Now, think. If you're the people of the book, not the people of idols, you're the people of the book, you're the people of the word, you grow up learning all of the Old Testament, your women, when they speak, They speak the word of God. Have you read Miriam's song? Have you read what uh, Elizabeth said? Have you read what Mary said? I mean, they are people who are absolutely owned by the word of God. The highest position is their king, but right up there next to him is the prophet Nathan. And who tells David off? The prophet Nathan, right? And what does the prophet do? Words. He speaks messages from God, and they write them down. You've got the Old Testament. Now think about this. These people belong to God. These people have had God's blessing. And principle among his blessings have been the gift of God's words. And guess what? Somehow, the greatest prophet against abortion and euthanasia and infanticide in America in the last 50 years, I don't know how this happens. (laughs) I mean, the two greatest prophets against abortion in this country have both been atheist Jews. How does that happen? You know, you just think, whoa, you know, where did, I didn't see that coming, right? And who were they? Bernard Nathanson and Nat Hentoff. (laughs) Weird. It's so weird. You understand? It's so weird. Listen. When God chooses you, you either are a force for evil or a force for good. Does that make sense to you? Bernard Nathanson repented. He wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine a letter to the editor saying he came to believe that he had presided over the death of 70,000 little children in New York City at his abortuary. And he became far and away the greatest prophet against the destruction of the unborn. And for many years, he wasn't a believer, still an atheist Jew. <laughs> and then, guess what? He put his faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think Nat, Bernard, I don't think Nat Hentoff has. Listen. Remember what you were. 
And he's speaking partly as a Christian, the Apostle Paul, but he's speaking partly as a Jew. I mean, you can never quite take the Jew out of the Christian if, if he was a Jew before, you know. It's very hard for him not to remember how he looked down on everybody else because he had been chosen by God, right? Doesn't that make sense? And so listen, let's respect Jews. If they reject their Messiah, let's respect them by calling them to repent. It's not genocide. It's ethno-fulfillment. They they are not Jews now until they worship their Messiah who is a Jew. And I know it would make them froth at the mouth for me to say that. They'd say, I'm trying to wipe out their people group. No, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to love Jews. Because, boy, when you have someone who is generation after generation, millennia after millennia, fulfilling the word that is at the center of their, their being as Jews, brilliant people of the book, people of the word, not your pathetic audio and visual. You know, Jews aren't sitting around watching YouTube clips. They're reading and writing. Sorry. (laughs) But it's true, you know. It is true. And so we should love Jews, and we should get our minds into Jews, real Jews, and realize they are the people of God. But they have rejected the Messiah. The one the whole Old Testament points to. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, you remember how you used to not be Jews? But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, remember when you weren't Jews. What he's saying is, remember when you weren't Christians. Remember when you weren't in Christ. Remember back when you were Gentiles. So even in this usage, the Apostle Paul is showing how the meaning of Jew is changing as we watch it. It's in transition. And now what he's really saying is, you remember how when you were pagan. Remember how when you were non-Christians. Remember before you were born again by the Spirit of God. Okay? Okay? Before you were born again by the Spirit of God. Okay, what were we like before we were born again by the Spirit of God? Well, here's the description. You were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Led astray to the... Now, this construction, led astray, is the one that's used all the time for people who are being taken to prison, taken to execution, prisoners of war in, in, in a battle. You know, there's not a lot of volition on the part of the people who are being led, okay? Do you understand? Mary Lee and I used to have a, uh, uh, a spice rack. And on the spice rack, there was a huge brass ring. And if you picked it up, it was very heavy. What was the brass ring? Where did it come from? It was precious to us. 
There was a woman who started coming into our home back when we were in Wisconsin. She continued to visit us when we came here. And this woman grew up on a farm. And this woman had suffered terribly her whole life. And because of this, she could not stand men. She would come into my home because of my wife. And so if she was in my home, what would I do? I would try to sort of sneak in and out. You know, I'd kind of, hi, you know. And that was my way of loving her and treating her tenderly. And this went on year after year after year where Mary Lee loved her and we were her advocate. We tried to deal with the oppressors in her past. So then when we moved here, she began to visit us. And when she began to visit us, again, you know, she's now staying in our home. Up there, she stayed someplace else. She'd come in our home, and I would be like, uh, hi, (laughs) I'm not here, you know. Because if I even looked at her directly, it would just scare, scare her to death. And then, one day, she was leaving. And as she left, she said, Tim, would you give me a hug? Would you give me a hug? And then she gave us this ring. What is this ring? This ring is the ring from a bull's nose. This is how you deal with a bull. You put a ring through its nose. So tender that you can take a humongous, powerful bull and just control it with a little ring in its nose. She worked with bulls. And so she brought a ring and she gave this ring to us. And what did it symbolize? Freedom in Christ. The Lord had healed her. And that ring was the symbol that what? Well, that she was no longer being led. Do you understand this? But now she had freedom. Well, this is what it's speaking of here, where it says, you know when you were pagans, you were led. And led where? Astray. And what does it mean, astray? Well, to the mute idols. Now, isn't this a perfect description of Bloomington? This is filled with idols, and they're mute. They can't do nothing. The idols of Bloomington can't do nothing. All they can do is give you a certification on sheepskin that you too have been led astray by mute idols. That's all your degree is. I am a professor holding a Ph.D. in mute idolship. Now, don't worry. I'm not an anti-intellectual. Much. (laughs) But listen, think of all the values that are pervasive in Bloomington, all of the commitments that we are so weak we can't call them commitments, we have to call them values. 
All right, right? This is Bloomington, right? You know, we're just filled up with love for mute idols. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't lift their arm. If the true God comes in their presence, they go all kaboom. You know? Dagon falls when a real Christian comes in. You ever been a real Christian somewhere on the campus of IU? I know, I know you're not supposed to do it, but try it sometime. <laughs> try to be a real Christian at IU. You know? All of a sudden, Dagon just splits in half and falls on the ground, and everybody's just so scandalized. You know? Money, intellectual pride, laissez-faire capitalism, democracy, freedom, inclusivity, pluralism, sexual perversity, right? I mean, come on. This city is filled with idols. And listen, if you think it's filled with idols on the east side of town, (laughs) trust me, it's filled with idols on the west side of town. There's just different idols. But all of us in this city outside of Christ are being led astray to impotent, Blind, deaf, mute idols. And that's the condition of life outside of Jesus Christ. You know, you, you think you're living. Sometimes you even think you're vital. But you're all dead men and dead women walking. That's it. That is it. And listen, if you're a Christian and you look at your life outside of Christ before he, not you, he snatched you out, none of you will deny that this was the condition of your life before Jesus Christ gave you new life. None of you will deny that, right? I mean, I can almost say that with impunity here. Everybody will agree to that. But how is it that knowing what we were like, we all of a sudden have no faith for anybody else? We think that even though God snatched us, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the condition of our loved ones, our family members, our neighbors, our professors, our co-workers, is that they're not led astray. They don't have a ring in their nose. Their gods are so sophisticated and powerful that we begin to worship them. And we think that by doing obeisance to their gods, we'll somehow make them come to Jesus. But of course, we don't want them to come to Jesus. What we want them to do is come to church and help pay the cost of this building. (laughs) And so listen, guys. Does God really need our help? What is going to bring somebody out of being led astray to mute idols? Is it going to be another man doing obeisance to his idols? I mean, it's just so stupid. Come on. Now you say, well, what do you mean we do obeisance to their idols? Okay, you want me to tell you? If I took a vote, half of you would say yes and half no. So I'm going to, I'm to unless somebody calls for... for a division of the house, I'm going to say that the yays have it. All right. Have you ever noticed that church plants in conservative church, they are all about craft brews? I read them. 
Because I'm often asked to find churches for people. Constantly asked to find churches for people. So I have to go on the web and I have to read about churches in specific geographical locations. And generally I go for conservative churches, Baptist or Presbyterian, and generally there's a new church being planted. And you know what? The pastors of these new churches are always telling me about the fact that they're connoisseurs of brew, of beer. And they all have soul patches. And they're hip. And that's how they're going to bring people to Jesus. (laughs) It's like crazy. (laughs) You came to Jesus because Jesus was hip, right? It's just absurd. You didn't come to Jesus. He grabbed you. But all of a sudden, we think that if we show our sophisticated palates when it comes to brew, you know, that then people will realize that we're in touch with the larger world and will be contextualized. And then people will want to join us. And what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Nothing. Nothing. We are not dependent on the Holy Spirit to give somebody new birth. We are dependent on ourselves to to occupy the sweet spot where people will think we're hip because that's all life is anymore is copying a posture. That's what Facebook is. And the only question is what posture you're copying. And then we read the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul saying, this is what is the condition of your family members, your neighbors, everybody you love who is outside of Christ. They are pagans who are led astray to the mute idols, however they are led. In other words, there's polymorphous perversity to the ways that each one goes. There is diversity, but it's a diversity of death, not of life. It's a pluralism of bondage and slavery. It's inclusive of every evil. And so the Apostle Paul continues having established that this was the true condition of all of them. Then he says in verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. Well, these are the people that were led astray to mute idols. And when they say Jesus is accursed, they're not doing that by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they're pagans. They're led astray to mute idols. There's no hope for them. Because the Holy Spirit is not controlling them. Because nobody says Jesus is accursed by the Spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's dividing everybody according to the Holy Spirit. Not according to their soul patch or their brewski connoisseurship. Okay? Not according to whether or not people greeted them at church. Not according to the music. Not according to the signage of the building, how much parking there is, whether or not east side or west side of town. It's the Holy Spirit that divides men and women. 
And there are people who are possessed by the Holy Spirit and have been born again. And they believe in Jesus, and they say Jesus is Lord. And there are people who are not possessed by the Holy Spirit, but rather by demons. And they are in bondage, they are slaves, and they are led astray. That's it. Those are the only two divisions. And to the degree that a church tries to blur that being the great division across all humanity, that church is not bearing biblical testimony to the people that it ministers to. To the degree that a church tries to blur the distinction between those who are pagans and those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who are in possession by the Holy Spirit and those the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with, to a degree that the church blurs that distinction, that church is lying about everything that's precious in life. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, just a second on this Jesus is accursed and Jesus is Lord. Accursed is the word anathema. You know it from the book of Galatians. It's a word that is closely connected to the word holocaust. You all know the word holocaust. What is a holocaust? A holocaust is something that is devoted to God and put on the altar and burned up. And so that's where this word came from. And this word is referring here to those who are damned, cursed, and they belong to God for judgment, okay? So nobody can say that Jesus is damned by God and given over to judgment who has the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, because Jesus is not given over to judgment. That's what the Jews and the Romans thought. But God vindicated him. God did not abandon his body to the grave. All right? So they're not not possessed by the Holy Spirit, okay? And no one can say Jesus is Lord. Now, what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? Well, you can see it's the opposite of Jesus' anathema. Jesus is devoted to God for fire, a holocaust. Jesus is Lord is two things. Number one, in the Old Testament, you remember all through the Old Testament, the specific personal name for God, the God of the Israelites, is Sometimes we say Jehovah, sometimes we say Yahweh, Tetragrammaton, all right? But when you look at it in your English Bible, that word is always translated in small caps or upper caps, Lord. And so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, when the word Yahweh was translated, it was translated Lord. So that's the first half. When you say Jesus is Lord, what are you saying? Jesus is a person who lived in their time. They knew him. So to say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is God. But that's not all it means, because Lord has a content in their time. And that content is authority. And so when you in the, in the ancient world said, Jesus is Lord, 
You were submitting to the authority of a man who bore flesh, who was God incarnate, and your life was under his authority. He who said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And so guess what? When the Roman Empire wanted to persecute you, they required you to say, Jesus is anathema. And when you refuse, because by faith the Holy Spirit gave you the strength to do so, you would not say that. You would say, Jesus is Lord. And what's the difference between the two? Is the difference that one of them had Joyce Huck for a mother? Joyce Huck, to those of you that don't know, she is the Buana woman, the Amazon of our congregation. You know? And you could imagine how Joyce Huck would, of her own, on her own, will her son to say Jesus is Lord. And he'd be so scared of her, he'd just say Jesus is Lord. Right? <laughs> those of you that know Joyce Huck, <laughs> you know. <laughs> don't worry, she's... She's a fantastic woman. Now listen. What makes you able to say Jesus is Lord is not who your mama was or your grandma. And it's not where your church is. And it's not your preacher. And it's not your wife. There is nothing that makes you able to say Jesus is Lord other than the Holy Spirit. Nothing but the Holy Spirit. That's it. And what's the Apostle Paul doing? The Apostle Paul is making it so clear that we have nothing to take pride in. Because all we are is examples of the work of the Holy Spirit in a man. That's it. Are you with me? It's just so simple. Now, he goes on and he says this. And just feel the rhythm. There's a rhythm here. I want you to feel it. He says, now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And so people will look at this and they'll say, oh, okay, let's, let's, like, let's put this in a table. You know, let's put this in a chart. Okay, so we've got varieties of gifts. So gifts is different. Varieties of, okay, gifts, the same spirit. Oh, okay, gifts, spirit. Ministries, Lord, affects God. Okay, the Trinity here. Okay, so gifts, Holy Spirit, ministries, Jesus, and affects God. Okay, and so you'll find everybody going over these verses saying, okay, this is mystical. You know, this is like, this is, this is, there has to be something that approximates, um, you know, a schematic. The, 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 the design of code that, that resembles the order in my shop of the tools hanging on the wall. And so there's a reason that Tim has his saws over there, his hand saws, 
and his power tools there and his screwdrivers here, because he uses the screwdrivers and they're on the right side. He's right-handed. And so people go through these three verses and they say, well, okay, the God the Father got that. No, 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 no. No. What matters here is two things. Number one, that there are a variety of works of the Spirit, but only one God who does all that variety. That's it. And the one God is spoken of as the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. But the point isn't to make a multiplicity of origins of the power of God. The point is to show that these three persons are one God, and it's only one God who's working everything that's being worked. And so what does this mean? What this means is because he ends by saying it's the same God who works all things in all persons. And what does this mean? Well, now I know you're going to think I've gone to the dark side. But what this means is, are you ready for this? Fasten your safety belts. Unity in diversity. Doesn't that feel good? So it took me a long time, but I finally come back to the east side. (laughs) You know, who can be against unity and diversity? You know? Isn't that what life is all about? It's the same God who works all things in all persons. Diversity of things, one God, unity. And then verse 7, but, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so we see that there's no good that comes other than from God. And so the first thing that the Holy Spirit says to us here is, look, it's God who does all these diverse things And it's for the common good. And so in this church, we have, all of us have gifts. And we'll get into this more in the coming weeks, but all of us have gifts. All of us have gifts. Okay? And the gifts aren't for us. The gifts are for the common good. And some gifts are very presentable. Everybody loves the man that cleans the toilets. Nobody ever gets embarrassed about the way he does his work. Everybody loves the person that cuts the grass. Everybody loves the person that puts the roof on the building. Nobody gets upset about how the person puts the roof on the building. Everybody loves the person that sets up the chairs. Everybody loves the deacons giving us money when we're poor. Everybody loves the person that brings out the bread and the cup. Everybody loves the mother that gives birth to children. Everybody loves the Sunday school teacher. Everybody loves the person that doesn't do our flowers. (laughs) 
You remember the, remember the ECC? Every Sunday we had these huge flower arrangements, and I always was like peering at the congregation through the flowers. So they have to choose. I guess I'll choose this. But I love flowers. But there are some gifts you just really don't like. <laughs> right? There's some gifts that you really wish we could treat them with greater honor because they're so unpresentable. This last week, I had a number of people in my face about my preaching two weeks ago. Apparently, I said that if you're a feminist, this is not the church for you, and there were some people who were upset about that, and then other people who were upset about how I handled something else, and you know. Now, listen, you always think that I'm the one that's presentable. Let me tell you something. Every single person in this church who has a gift from the Holy Spirit, you would rather introduce your friends to them than to me. You ever thought about that? You know what's really embarrassing is the preaching of the Word of God. Because he's out there, and you're not in control of him. And he is a you-know-what. In other words, God uses sinful men to preach to you. Remember Calvin says he could have used angels, but he chose to use your inferior, so you would be humbled when he preaches to you. (laughs) Come on! What is a preacher? A preacher is a man that's willing to get up and make a total you-know-what of himself to try to communicate the Word of God, which is entirely contrary to every single thing you hear every minute of every day. And you think it's easy, and you think I'm the one that's honored? Oh, come on. You hate me. There are many people here right now who hate me. You think I don't know it? That's why I have facial texts. The only reason that we have preachers is not because preachers are better than anybody else. It's because there are inferiors, and so we're humbled feeding from their hand. That's it. That's it. The real admirable person in this church is the person who cooks the person who changes diapers, the person who cleans the toilets, the person who lets us come over to her house and clean it. Nobody is ever opposed to that person. (laughs) What's the point of being opposed to the person that cleans the toilet? If you're opposed to them, then you'll have a dirty toilet. Any of you want a dirty toilet? But wouldn't you wish sometimes that the preacher would just shut up Nobody's ever asked the toilet cleaner to shut up. (laughs) Listen. Every gift is for the common good. Everybody has a gift. And preaching does not count more than cleaning the toilets. But we give a certain honor to the preacher because he's so unpresentable. And that's why we cover him with clothing and treat him with honor. (laughs) You know? Because he's so unpresentable. He's so embarrassing. He's so shameful. 
We never bother dressing up the custodian. We don't treat the custodian with special honor because who needs more honor than cleaning a toilet? Right, Jurgen? I'll close with this story. This is Jurgen von Hagen, and Jurgen is an eminent professor of economics from Germany, where they really do have brains. Not posers like Americans. You know, they've been doing it for centuries over there. And Jurgen started coming to church with his wife, Ilse, at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. And his English wasn't real good. He was teaching. He's always held an appointment at Kelly's school in economics. And so he's teaching. And he starts going to Grace Covenant because John Canfield, David's father, says, you need to be in church with me. They were all playing in in the Bloomington Symphony. And so Jurgen comes to church, and then his wife gives birth to a premature baby, and the women of the church love his wife and help her. So they start going to church, right? No craft brew, just help. And do you know what that church did? And I've heard this again and again from Jurgen. He says that after they came a little while, they said to him, listen, there aren't too many things you can do in this church because you can't speak English well, and, and what do you know? But you can clean our bathrooms. And Jurgen has often said that that was the sweetest thing that they did for them. And that's where we're headed in the next couple of chapters. We've got to completely flip upside down the whole priority and honor and how we honor and how we give priority. And we have to absolutely put to death the idea that some of us are better than others because of what we do or don't do. Every individual in this church has gifts from the Holy Spirit for the building up of the common. And what this means is we are the only place, the Church of Jesus Christ, in this community that has unity and diversity. And everyone else is just a lousy counterfeit. They just claw trying to get unity and diversity. And their diversity just goes around and makes everybody walk in lockstep so that nobody can say anything because you have to be politically correct because you're so worried about not having unity and diversity. And there's no unity, it's uniformity. It's sameness. Whereas when you come into the church of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit works on you, for the first time in your life, you're free to be as weird as you actually are. And the more holy you become, the weirder you become. Because outside of Christ is slavery. And inside of Christ is freedom. Okay? Now listen, I want to end by saying this. The people that criticized my preaching last week guarantee you I'm thankful for. All of them had a very good point. But I want to make it very clear to you, go ahead and criticize me and tell me what I've done wrong. I want to hear. But don't you ever think that when I become a good preacher, I'll stop making you angry. For two reasons. Number one, the truth of God is painful. And number two, I'm a sinner. And if one doesn't get you, the other will. Okay? 
So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it is sharper than any two-edged sword able to separate between joints and marrow. And we pray that it will purify us and help us to see ourselves as we are. And we pray, Father, that you will pour your spirit out on us today. That every man and woman and boy and girl here today will be born again by your spirit and will be given gifts for the building up of us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.